Well, good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. And it is uh, exciting and it's an honor to be here in, in the pulpit with you guys again. Uh, oh, sorry. Kids are dismissed. I, I jumped the gun too quick. I was told to dismiss kids. I just got too excited to be in the pulpit that I just jumped right into it. Uh, hey, my name is Andrew. Uh, I'm currently serving on staff here at Pillar DC as a church planting resident. Um, and like I said, it's just a joy to be before you guys again. And, and this morning, I get the, the privilege of continuing to walk us through our sermon series in the book of Exodus. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and flip with me to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. This morning, we're going to be looking at the story of Israel and the golden calf. And it, it's a story you may be uh, fairly familiar with. Uh, I know for me, it was a story I heard growing up in children's church, and it was a story that we often talked about uh, in settings like vacation Bible school. Uh, and afterwards, you know, we were told this story, and then we were giving like a coloring page or some scissors and some glitter to make like a golden calf or, create, or color a golden calf. And hindsight, looking back, probably wasn't the best thing that we should be doing in VBS, but nonetheless, I can assure you this morning uh, that... We won't be doing any coloring, and we won't be doing any crafts, but instead I want to point out the wild irony and the true shock value found in, the, uh, in this story in Exodus chapter 32. And so if you're someone who likes to take notes or you're someone who just likes to have a, a general idea of where we're going this morning, then the main point of the sermon is this, great sinners have sinned against a great God and are in need of a great intercessor. I'll say it again. Great sinners have sinned against a great God and are in need of a great intercessor. So this morning we'll, we'll read the text, I'll pray for us, and then we'll dive in and unpack what this text is actually saying. So Exodus chapter 32, starting in verse 1, the word of the Lord says this, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. And Aaron received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool, and he made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a, a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat, to drink, and they rose up early to play. Verse 7 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people who you brought up out of the land of Egypt. They have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. 
And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. Verse 11, But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of, spoken of bringing on his people. Let's pray. Holy God, you are good. God, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful that your word reveals to us our sinful nature and how greatly we sin against you. God, I'm thankful that your word points to your justice of the Father. And God, I'm thankful that your word gives insight to, to intercessors like Moses that are ultimately a type and a shadow of the great intercession that was made on the cross. So God, I pray that today as we walk through this story, as we unpack what this story is saying, God, I pray that we would be led to the foot of the cross with, with humble hearts, revealing to us the, our sinful natures and how greatly we sin against you. And God, I pray that we would lean and cling to the cross, just as the song said earlier, that we would cling to the cross uh, in Christ as our great intercessor. So Jesus, we love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so this morning, I want to point out three scenes, three scenes from this text in Exodus 32. The first scene, or point number one, is this. Israel has broken the covenant. Israel has broken the covenant. Here in these first six verses of Exodus chapter 32, what we see is Israel committing a great sin of idolatry and ultimately breaking their covenant with the Lord. And the reason why I, I tack on this adjective of, of a great sin and sinning greatly against the Lord is because Moses calls it that. If you were to follow this text throughout the rest, or if you were to follow this chapter out throughout the rest of the text, you'll, you would notice in uh, uh, verse 30 that Moses gathers all of Israel after all of these things have transcribed and he tells Israel, he says, you have sinned a great sin against the Lord. But for us today to truly understand the gravity and the weight of this text and just how truly great this sin was, we have to do a little bit of contextual excavation. We have to build a little bit of a contextual framework to realize how we got to Exodus 32 in the first place. And so for us to truly understand the weight and, and, and the depth of Exodus 32, we have to go all the way back to Exodus 19. So all the way back in Exodus 19... What we see in this narrative is, is Moses has led Israel through the wilderness. 
They've, they've gone through, you know, they've gone through the Red Sea. They've received the manna from heaven. Moses has led them through the wilderness, and they arrive at the foot of Mount Sinai, the mountain in which God promised Israel would worship him. And when they arrive at Mount Sinai, Moses instructs Israel to encamp at the foot of the mountain while he goes up to, to be with the Lord. And so as you continue through the story, you get to Exodus chapter 20. And in Exodus chapter 20, we see that the unfolding of the law, what we would call the Ten Commandments. We see laws on restitution and restoration. We see laws on the Sabbath, and these laws go on for four chapters. From Exodus 20 all the way through Exodus chapter 23. And after God gives Moses the law in these four chapters, we get to Exodus chapter 24. And Moses comes down from the mountain. And he goes to the place where Israel is encamped. And he gathers them around. And then we see in Exodus chapter 24, specifically verse 7, this massive text that helps us understand what is going on in Exodus chapter 32. And so in Exodus chapter 24, verse 7, we see Moses, he comes down from the mountain. He gathers all of Israel. And the Bible tells us this. Then Moses took the book of the covenant. The book of the covenant was the law that he had just gotten on the mountain. Moses, he took the book of the covenant and he read it aloud in the hearing of the people. And they, being Israel, they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. Now, catch what Israel says there in Exodus 24-7. At the end of that verse, Israel says, All that... All that the Lord has commanded, we will do, and we will be obedient. And so in that moment, in Exodus chapter 24, verse 7, Israel confirms their covenant with God. They confirm the covenant with the Lord. They entered into covenant with God. And so you may remember a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, Clint Clifton, he actually preached on these texts in Exodus 20 through 24, and he, he defined what a covenant was. He went to length talking about what a covenant is. Uh, so I don't want to build on that. We don't have a lot of time to talk too much about that. Uh, if you want to listen to it, you can find his sermon on our website if you want to know more about what a covenant is. But just for our understanding today, it might be helpful to have a running definition of a covenant. So a covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to one another. Covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to one another. For example, in a modern context, uh, take my wife and I. We have entered into a marriage covenant together. On the day of our wedding, I stood before her. I, I recited my vows. I said, I promise to love you, to cherish you, to keep you, X, Y, Z. Those were my binding promises to my wife. And she stood before me and said, I promise to love you and to cherish you and to care for you, X, Y, Z. Those were her binding promises to me. And at that moment, we entered into a marriage covenant together. And so in this covenant, in Exodus chapter 24, verse 7, the one that Israel just confirmed, in this covenant, the two parties were God and Israel. God's binding promises that he promised to Israel were that he would be their God, that he would dwell with his people, and that he would make his people a chosen and treasured people. 
He promised to be their God. He promised to dwell with them. And he promised to make them a a chosen and treasured people. And Israel's binding promises back to the Lord were that they would keep the commands that God gave Moses in Exodus 20 through 23. That they would keep the law. That was their binding promise in the covenant. And so things are, things are looking good for Israel. You know, they've been miraculously led out of captivity. They walked through a literal sea on dry ground, and then that same sea crushed their enemies. They were fed miraculous bread from heaven. At this moment, they were given the holy and perfect law of God. They entered into covenant with that God. So things are on the up and up again for Israel. So it seems. And then you continue in the story. You get to Exodus chapter 25. And for seven chapters, Exodus chapter 25, all the way through Exodus chapter 31, what Doug preached on last week, in these seven chapters, we see God, or we see Moses going back up on the mountain, and and Moses is having this conversation, this dialogue with God. And in these seven chapters, God goes to great and, and intricate detail on the ways in which he is going to keep his promises with his people. In these seven chapters, we we see the beauty and the richness in in the ways in which God is going to dwell with his people, the ways in which God is going to be their God, and the ways in which God is going to make Israel a treasured and chosen people among the nations. So everything is good, right? Like, seems good for Israel. Well, that actually isn't the case. That's actually, we see the opposite take place in this Narrative. After these seven chapters of of God going into intricate detail of how he is going to keep his promises, we kind of get this like record scratch moment. Like we get this abrupt turn of events in Exodus chapter 22. And it's in Exodus chapter 22 that once we see this, this, this story in the context of the greater narrative of Exodus, we see just how truly ironic and shocking this story is. Remember, the last time we saw anything about Israel in this narrative was Exodus chapter 24, verse 7. And in that moment, they confirmed the covenant. The very next time we see anything about Israel mentioned in this text, they break the covenant. No sooner did Israel receive the law and confirm the covenant, they turn right around and break it. But it's important for us to note, too, the way in which Israel broke the covenant. Like, you can go back and read all of the law, the numerous laws in Exodus chapter 20 through 23. Like, there's a a ton of laws in those texts. And, And as we think about Israel breaking the covenant, it's not as if Israel kept all the law except, you know, maybe one or two. It's not as if Israel kept half the law and broke half the law. What we notice from Exodus 32 is Israel broke the very first and second commands of the law. Like right out of the gate, right off the starting block, they break the covenant. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 and 4, these, these, these verses may sound familiar. They're the, they're the first two commands of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, uh, verses 3 and 4, it says, You shall have no other gods before me, first commandment. And the second, you shall not make for yourself any carved image. Fast forward to Exodus chapter 32, verses 4 and 5. And Aaron received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Well, there's number two. 
And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. There's the first one. Like, to help us picture this, imagine if a, a man and a woman, they get engaged, and they're going through this engagement process, they're going through a pretty uh, intense premarital counseling, and you know, they're doing what they can to abstain from various like, sexual sins before marriage, and then they get to the altar on their wedding day, and they say their vows, they, they, they say their binding promises to one another, they enter into this marriage covenant, and then that night after the reception, the bride goes home with one of the groomsmen. It sounds preposterous, and it sounds wild, and it may seem extreme, but in many ways, this is exactly what Israel had done when they broke their covenant with God. Remember, as soon as they received the law, and they confirmed the covenant, they turn right around, and they shatter it. But it's important for us that we not gloss over the implications of this text and and, and the implications that really this had for Israel's history. What we're going to see next week uh, in Exodus 33 is that right after Israel breaks this covenant, it causes this division. It drives this wedge between Israel and God so much so that God, remember how God said he was going to dwell with Israel. Well, because uh, of Israel's sin and because of their idolatry, what we'll see next week is Israel is encamped at the foot of Mount Sinai and God can't dwell in the midst of his people, so they have to set up the tent of meeting outside the camp. So their sin had uh, immediate implications, but it also had, had future implications. Like, this, isn't, this wasn't the only time that Israel was idolatrous. It's not as if, you know, God picked them up, dusted them off, and sent them on their way, and they were fine throughout the rest of their history. This is a, a common pattern throughout the Old Testament, so much so that you, you may remember the story of, of Stephen, the, the first martyr in Acts chapter 7. Well, the very thing that got Stephen martyred was the sermon he preached before the Sanhedrin, before the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And in this sermon, Stephen, he recalls Israel's idolatry at the foot of Mount Sinai with the golden calf. And then after that, tacks on a bunch of other instances where Israel is idolatrous in their history. And it ultimately proves the moral of this story. Israel has always been idolatrous. And Israel has always broken their covenant with the Lord. So the question we have to ask ourselves today is this, what does this mean for us? Why should we read a text like Exodus chapter 32 and get anything from it? We're not, like, we are not in ancient Israel right now. So what does this text mean for us? Well, the reality is, is this text must force us today, the readers of this ancient text, it must force us to look inward at our own lives. It can be easy for us to to wag our fingers at Israel and say, how dare you, Israel? How could you do such a thing? Didn't God just mere weeks ago miraculously lead you out of slavery? Did God mere weeks ago not just lead you through the Red Sea and then crush your enemies in it? Did God mere weeks ago not just uh, provide uh, supernatural bread from heaven? How could you do such a thing, Israel? But today, we ourselves, we must take our hindsighted, tinted glasses off we must not look at, at, at hindsight being 2020, because the reality is, is when we examine our own lives, we do the exact same thing as Israel did. Right. Understand that sin has tainted every fiber of our beings. 
Sin has wreaked havoc on our world. And so because of that, we are by nature bent towards worshiping creation rather than the creator. No, we are, I mean, like, we're not making golden calves for ourselves today. I hope you're not. If you are, you may have very easy application from this story. But you may not be making golden calves today. But how often will we forsake the faith for the idolatry of a career? How often will we forsake the church and the local gathering for the idolatry of a home or a particular neighborhood? How often will we forsake things like evangelism and the Great Commission for the idolatry of comfort and non-confrontation? Friends, understand that we are much more like Israel than we like to give ourselves credit for. And so because Israel has sinned greatly against the Lord, because we ourselves have sinned greatly against the Lord, this creates a massive problem. Which leads us to the second scene, or the second point in this story. God will judge the covenant breakers. God will judge the covenant breakers. So remember in the first six verses, we saw Israel sin greatly against the Lord by committing idolatry and breaking their covenant with Him. And now in verses 7-10, through we're going to see God promise to wipe all of Israel out and start over with Moses. Very similar to like a Noahic moment. Remember Noah, how none were righteous, so God wiped everyone out and started over with Noah and his family. Very similar tone here. And so as we examine this portion of the text, as we examine verses 7 through 10, I want to point out two reasons why the Lord promised to judge the covenant breakers. The first is the severity of their sin. The severity of their sin. Notice the language that God uses to describe Israel in verse 7. God's talking to Moses, and God says, Moses, your people who you led out of Egypt, they have corrupted themselves. Israel's idolatry caused them to be totally corrupted and totally alienated from the Lord. If you were to study this text in its original Hebrew you would read this, the Hebrew phrase for, uh, for corrupted themselves, and you would know that it, it paints this picture of total deprivation and total ruin, so much so that they are permanently spoiled. They're permanently ruined. My wife and I, we, we like to shop at Aldi because we're balling on a budget. And um, if you've ever shopped at Aldi before, you know what you're getting yourself into. But, um, you know, for us, sometimes we'll, we'll go buy some produce, like some strawberries, for example. And, and we'll buy our strawberries, we'll take them home, and they'll last a normal amount of time, so much so that we can eat them all. But other times, if you shop at Aldi, you buy their produce, and you take your strawberries home, and two days later, they're fuzzy and moldy, and the whole batch is, is rotten. But the thing is, is we don't keep rotten and moldy and spoiled strawberries in our fridge because they're not going to get unrotten. We have to do something with them. And this is why here in the church today, we often talk about the seriousness and the deadly severity of sin in our own lives. Sin in this story had dire consequences for Israel. If you were to read the rest of the story at the end of the chapter, you'll see that it was about 3,000 people who committed this idolatry. And there were about 3,000 people who had sinned against the Lord. And because of this, at the end of the chapter, they're slaughtered, they're killed. 
And then on top of that, the remaining Israelites, God sent a plague on them. And so Israel's sin had dire and severe consequences for them in this story. But understand, the same is true for us today. Sin in our lives has dire consequences for us. In the New Testament, in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Paul says, For the wages of sin is death. What that means is this, is that if I work a a 40-hour-a-week job, I expect to get a a 40-hour-a-week paycheck. Those are my wages for working that job. As a sinner, what I am owed because of my sin is total death and destruction. The wages of my sin is death. John MacArthur puts it this way. John MacArthur says, Sin is the most devastating, most debilitating, and most degenerating power that ever entered into the human stream. But it was not only the severity of Israel's sin that caused God's anger to burn hot against them. It was also the quickness of their sin. How hastily and quickly they turned away from the Lord. Look at verse 8 with me. Verse 8 says, They have turned, or God says, They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. This language that that God uses to describe the haste and the quickness in which Israel turned away from the Lord and started worshiping idols, it helps us understand the irony and the shock value found in this text. Remember, no sooner did Israel confirm the covenant, they turn right around and they break it. But as we examine the haste in which Israel turned away from the Lord and began to worship idols, we must ask ourselves, do we too not do the exact same thing? Do we too not turn from the Lord in haste and in quickness and worship idols for ourselves? Well, the reality is, of course we do. You probably wouldn't have to examine your life too uh, intently under the microscope to realize that you worship idols daily. I worship idols daily. Again, we are no different from Israel. So how can we practically fight against hastily turning away from the Lord and towards idolatry? Well, the first is lean into Christ. If you want to turn away from worshiping creation, well, worship the Creator. That's a good substitute. Lean into Christ. If you're an unbeliever, if you're someone here who has never identified as a Christian before, someone who has never placed your faith and your trust in Christ, my encouragement to you today is trust in Christ for the first time. Trust in Christ as the one who, who, who was born of the virgin, who lived the perfect life that we were supposed to live. He didn't break the covenant. He died the death that we deserve, and he was raised again. So if you have never trusted in Christ for the first time, to lean into Christ today would be to trust in Christ for the first time. For the believer, if you're, here who's, if you're someone here who identifies as a Christian or someone who believes in Christ, my encouragement to you is trust in Christ. Same thing. Understand, believer, that the gospel is not something you graduate from. The gospel is not something you move on from. It's not a box you check and then say, okay, I've got that, now what? The gospel is something we need every single day. So believer, if you want to fight sin, if you want to turn from idolatry, turn to the Creator and, 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 and believe and trust in Christ daily. But not only lean into Christ, that's one way you can fight sin and idolatry in your life, but another way is to get plugged into community. Join the church. 
I see we have some visitors here today. Praise God for visitors. If you are someone here who, who wants to fight sin, you want to fight idolatry in your life, the reality is you have to join a local body. If it's Pillar DC, praise God. If it's another Bible-preaching, Bible-believing church, praise God. But to be a lone wolf sheep is to not be a part of the flock and is to be easy pickings for the enemy. If you are not a part of the local body, you cannot be shepherded. The elders cannot come around you and hold you accountable and walk with you through life if you are not a part of the body. So if you want to get plugged into community, join the church. Second way is join a small group. This is my shameless plug for small group right here in the pulpit. We're launching small groups in two weeks, uh, the week after Labor Day. And I promise you there is a small group coming to a location near you. We have small groups in Maryland, in D.C., in, in, in Virginia, at my house. We have small groups on JBAB, in the military base. Wherever you are in the DMV, unless you live like way out there, or you're not from here, we have a small group coming near you. And so if you want a, a smaller, intimate place to fight sin and to fight and turn from idolatry, get plugged into a small group. The other way that you can get plugged into community is start being discipled. Start being discipled. If you're someone here who is already discipling somebody, praise God. But if you're someone here who is not being discipled, I would encourage you to start being discipled. It's a great opportunity to meet with a believer who may be a little wiser in the word than you are, a little more knowledgeable of the word than you are. Meet with that person one-on-one and, and, and walk through life together. Spend time praying together. Read the Bible and, and fight sin together. So if you want to get plugged into community, join the church, be a part of a small group, get discipled. If this is something that you think like, man, I really need to be a part of that, please come find us. We'll have people in the back. I'll be in the back. Talk to us about what it looks like to get plugged in to the life of our church, and we will be happy to talk with you about that. And so these are incredibly easy and very practical ways in which we can fight against idolatry and sin. But as you continue to examine this text, as you continue to walk through this narrative, you'll notice in verse 10, that God's wrath is still looming. God's wrath is still sitting above Israel's head, and that problem is still there. So that leads us to the third scene, or point number three. Moses intercedes for the covenant breakers. Moses intercedes for the covenant breakers. Remember, in the first six verses, we saw Israel break their covenant with God. By committing, by committing idolatry and sinning against him. Then in verses 7 through 10, we saw the Lord promise to wipe Israel out and start over with Moses in judging the covenant breakers. And now in verses 11 through 14, we're going to see Moses intercede on behalf of Israel. And so for us to understand what intercede is or, or, or what it means to make intercession, it would be helpful for us to define what this is. And so to intercede is to intervene between two parties in hopes of reconciling differences. To intercede is to intervene between two parties in hopes of reconciling differences. So in verse 11, Moses, or the text, the text tells us, But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? who you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. 
And so as God's wrath is looming over Israel, how does Moses respond? He doesn't turn around and walk back down the mountain with his head hung. He implores the Lord. He pleads with God. He begs God to spare Israel and relent from the destruction that he was going to bring on Israel. First, he pleads with the Lord to spare Israel because they're his people. If you remember back in verse 7, God associates the Israelites with Moses as Moses' people. In verse 7, God tells Moses, your people who you led out of Egypt. And now here in verse 11, Moses flips this language, flips this idea back around to God. And he begs the Lord to spare Israel because God had made a promise that he would be their God and he would dwell with them and they would be his people. And then in verse 12, we see that Moses pleads with the Lord to spare Israel based on God's glory. In verse 12, Moses asks this hypothetical question to God. And that hypothetical question essentially is boiled down to this. Should Egypt think of you, God, as a merciless or powerless God because you couldn't lead your people out of Egypt and get them to where you wanted them to be? Or because you were going to lead your people out of Egypt just to slaughter them in the wilderness? Should Egypt really be able to think that lowly of you, God? And so Moses asks God to relent from the destruction he was going to bring so that God would get glory. And lastly, in verse 13, Moses pleads with the Lord to spare Israel based on the promises he made to the patriarchs. In verse 13, Moses, he pleads with or he begs God to remember the promises that he had made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And essentially, Moses is telling God, if you wipe Israel out, then you will nullify the promises that you have already made to your people. And as we know, the character of God, God cannot nullify his own promises. We know, as we've seen so far in the book of Exodus, God is a promise-keeping God. So Moses implores the Lord to spare Israel based on his promises. And so, in this threefold prayer, Moses makes intercession for the people of Israel. In this moment, Moses stands firmly between God's wrath and sinful Israel in hopes of reconciling God's wrath towards his people. And as we continue to follow the thread of the text, what we see in verse 14 is that God eventually does relent. He turns from the destruction that he was going to bring on Israel. And so for us today, again, we must ask the question, what does this mean for us? Why Moses? Why, what does any of this have to do with anything, with anything? And as you continue to pull on this thread of intercession and you follow the string to the end of its line, what we see is that Moses continually makes intercession on behalf of Israel. If you continue to read the story of Moses through the first five books of the Old Testament, you'll see that Moses time and time again has to go before the Lord and make intercession for Israel. But eventually Moses dies. And eventually Moses could no longer make intercession for Israel. So the reality for us today, friends, is this. There is one who came after Moses. We continue to pull this thread. There's one that came after Moses that Moses himself promised would come. 
And the one who came after Moses lived this sinless life. He was perfectly holy. He was blameless. And he lived that life that we should have lived. He kept the covenant. And then he died the death on the cross. The death that we should have died because of our sin. And because he, because Christ was without sin, because he was blameless, he was raised from the dead. And today he is still alive, sitting at the right hand of the Father in power and in glory. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Paul says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, was raised. Who is now sitting at the right hand of God, who indeed is what? Interceding for us. This is good news for us today because if you are here this morning and you have placed your hope and your trust and your faith in Christ as your Savior, then friends, no, Moses does not make intercession for you. Moses is is dead. He died. But no, the better and the truer Moses, namely Christ Jesus, is making intercession before you or for you before the Father at this very moment. This is also good news for us because even today, if you are in Christ, we still sin. We will not reach Christian perfection. We will not ever be without sin on this side of eternity. But this is good news for us today because right now, Christ stands firmly in the middle of our sinful nature and the wrath of God based on His blood shed on the cross. You see, Moses was the perfect intercessor for Israel in this moment. In Exodus chapter 32, he was exactly what he needed to be. He made intercession for Israel. But know that he was just a type and a shadow of what was to come with Christ on the cross. He was a type and a shadow of the better and truer intercessor who would come as the Savior of the world. But as we begin to put a bow on this text, as we begin to wrap this text up, we're still left with one philosophical question that we have to answer. Look back with me at verse 14. In verse 14, after Moses makes intercession on behalf of Israel, we see that God relents from the disaster that he was going to bring on Israel. So the question remains, the philosophical question looming in the air for us today is this. Did God change his mind? In verse 14, did God change his mind? Well, in short, the answer is no, God didn't change his mind, nor can God ever change his mind. We would ascribe that that's one of the attributes of God is he is unchanging. He is is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is an unchanging God, so it'd be impossible for him to change his mind or to lie to Moses about destroying Israel. And Numbers chapter 23 verse 19 tells us that God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. And so when you pair these two texts up with one another, when you look at Exodus chapter 32 and you pair it with with Numbers chapter 23 verse 19, they seem like they're they're contradicting one another. They seem like there's something isn't right here. And, And for years, 
people have used texts like these two to try and, 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 uh, and, and pit God's word against itself and to poke holes in the truth and the inerrancy of God's word. But when you take a text like Exodus chapter 32 and, and you hold it up in the light of God's character, God's nature, then you truly can see the beauty of his justice and his mercy and how these two characteristics are inextricably linked with one another. A text like Exodus 32 will, will, will give us a, a great insight on God's mercy and God's justice. So, was God going to destroy Israel in Exodus 32 before Moses interceded for them? Was God going to destroy them? Yes, he absolutely was going to. If Mo, had Moses walked back down that mountain, God would have wiped Israel out and started over with Moses. So, so yes, God was going to destroy Israel. Did Moses' prayer have an effect on the outcome of God's destruction? Yes, after Moses prays for the Lord to spare Israel, God ultimately has grace and mercy towards them. And what we'll see later in this story, towards the back end of Exodus, is they're actually going to reconfirm the covenant. So yes, Moses' prayer had an effect on the outcome of God's destruction. Did God ultimately know in his sovereignty that he would spare Israel in this moment? Yes. God knew before the foundations of the world that he would spare Israel in this moment. And so how can all three of these things be true at the exact same time? Well, let's, let's kind of look at it in, in, in a more personal sense. Take, take my life, for example. I came, to, I came to faith when I was 20 years old. So think about it this way. Would God have totally destroyed me in hell in eternity forever had I died before I came to faith in Christ at 20 years old? Yes, God would have. When I trusted and believed in Christ for the first time, did the blood shed on the cross change the outcome of God's destruction of my life? Yes, it did. Did God know in his sovereignty that I would, would ultimately come to faith in Christ and that he would not have to punish me in hell for eternity? Yes, he did. And all three of these things can be true at the exact same time without contradicting one another. Sometimes we, we have to look at texts like this. We have to take texts like Exodus chapter 32. And we have to just sit and marvel at the mystery and the grandeur of God's sovereignty. Sometimes we have to take texts like Exodus chapter 32 and think like, did God change his mind? Well, no, he couldn't have. But also we can't fully explain what it means for God to be sovereign because we're not sovereign. We are finite. Sovereignty for us means what am I going to eat after service today? Sovereignty to God is infinite. He is an infinite God who has full sovereignty. and He knows both the beginning and the end of time as we know it and also the things that are going to happen within that time. So God is sovereign. And sometimes, even though we can't fully explain everything about the nature of God, we have to rest in that. Like, I'll just be candid with you guys. Like, if I could explain everything about God, that would be a horrible and puny God that I would never want to worship. Sometimes we have to rest in the mystery and the grandeur of God's sovereignty and trust that he is good 
and that he is sovereign and he is working everything together for the glory of himself and for the edification of his people. So I'm going to go ahead and ask the worship team to come back up. And I want to close with this. Great sinners have sinned against a great God and are in need of a great intercessor. Israel broke their end of the covenant. God promised to destroy them because they broke the covenant. But Moses interceded on their behalf. And God had compassion and mercy on His people. Today, every single one of us, myself included, we have fallen so, so short of the glory of God. And we have all sinned greatly against the Lord. And because of that, God has promised eternal punishment and separation away from Himself in hell forever because of our sin. But today, we have a truer and a better intercessor. A better and truer Moses in Christ Jesus who is making intercession for His people at this very moment. So my closing question is, will you believe and trust in Him for the forgiveness of sin and the relent of the Father's wrath? Let me pray. Father, You are... You're good, you're gracious, you are just, and you are merciful. God, I'm thankful for texts like Exodus chapter 32 that cause us to sit under the majestic and grand nature and character of yourself. God, I'm thankful for your sovereignty. I pray today, God, that your word would convict us of our idolatry and that we would be led to the foot of the cross to trust in Christ as our better and truer Moses, our better and truer intercessor. Jesus, we love you. Thankful for your word. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.